You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, as we turn to John chapter 8, it's important to keep in mind John chapter 8, verse 12, where we will find Jesus saying in the temple, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The concept that Jesus illuminates something is paramount to this next particular text, but also the idea of what he illuminates. Not simply that he shines into the darkness, but that he exposes something. And namely, what he exposes is God himself and God's incredible heart for mankind and the way in which mankind is able to get to a wonderful relationship with God. This is what Jesus exposes. Now, as the light of the world, he exposes other things as well. He exposes the guilt of mankind. He exposes the evil that is in the world. But the major thing that he exposes is the way to God and the heart of God. Now, before we get to that, we have this fascinating story in John 8, 1 through 11, concerning the woman that was caught in adultery. And if you're reading along in your Bible, you probably notice some kind of notation that says, for example, in my Bible, the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, all the way through chapter 8, verse 11. And so, you know, I'm no textual critic. I'm not really the one qualified to answer a question like this, but apparently there is some good evidence towards rejecting the idea that that this little story actually was a part of John's original gospel. Now, the evidence on that side of things is that not in virtually all early Greek manuscripts, although present in later manuscripts and a few early exceptions, that it's it's just not present. Even manuscripts in other languages do not have this story found within it. The early church fathers as well uh, seemingly omit this narrative from their teaching. Uh, Some place this story uh, after Luke 21 verse 38, other portions in John 7, or even at the very end of the entire gospel of John. And uh, some would say, although more educated than me on this matter, they would say that the original language found in John 8, 1 through 11 is different. The expressions and constructions aren't very similar to the rest of the Gospel of John. However, there's little reason to doubt that the event actually occurred. And for me, on my reading of it, to skip all the way from the end of chapter 7, verse 52, into chapter 8, verse 12, skipping over this story, is an awkward transition at best, especially when you consider that in verse 12 it says, again, Jesus spoke to them. And uh, chapter 7 ends with the religious leaders wondering why their temple guard had been unable to arrest Jesus. And so it seems awkward on the one hand to shift straight from the ending of that day into the next day. It's saying again, Jesus spoke. And this is very similar, this pattern to the rest of the Gospel of John, a story followed by teaching. The story of Nicodemus, followed by teaching. The story of the woman at the well, followed by teaching. The uh, story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, followed by teaching. The story of Jesus' conflict with his brothers, followed by teaching. Here you'd have the story of the woman 
caught in adultery, followed by more teaching. And so it follows the flow of this section of the Gospel of John. And to me, there's an internal witness and weightiness about it that declares to be part of and portion of God's Word. I suppose we'll find out with finality in eternity, but I'm going to teach it simply as I'm moving line by line through the Gospel of John uh, as the Word of God. And so it says in verse 1 that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now this is in contrast to chapter 7 verse 53 when everyone else went to their own homes. Jesus in that humbled state, the humble man, uh, not very prosperous in an earthly sense, living out under the stars. Foxes have holes, Jesus would say. Birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, this is a gruesome scene. Religious leaders find this woman who's been caught in the very act of adultery. Now, obviously, adultery is the kind of sin that takes two uh, to tango. And so either the man in this instance was more fleet of foot and faster, able to escape these accusers, or these religious leaders were sexist and chauvinistic men who devalued the life of a woman and turned a blind eye at the promiscuous actions of their male comrades. And so they come and they bring this ashamed and embarrassed woman and throw her into the midst of this teaching circle and says she's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, verse 5, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said, verse 6, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, in one sense, they were absolutely right. The law did say that a woman who was betrothed to be married should be stoned to death. Deuteronomy 22, verse 23 to 24. That's the clue that tells us this woman may have been a betrothed wife, not yet fully married, but engaged to be married, And if you were to break those betrothals in those days, it was just as lawfully binding as a regular marriage. And so it would would qualify as a divorce. And uh, elsewhere in the law, a woman caught in adultery, she was guilty and would have to suffer the death penalty. But the mode of death was not prescribed. And so here they say she has to be stoned to death. And they said all of this, verse 6, in order to test Jesus. Now, of course, the test is very simple. They've watched Jesus. They've seen that he is a man who is willing to hang out with tax collectors and sinners. In other places, their accusation about him was that he was a glutton and a wine-bibber. And so they assumed, on the one hand, that Jesus, when presented with this case, would immediately call the law of Moses an outdated, archaic book that need not be applied in this modern situation. And that was their thought. And of course, the accusation that they could then make is that Jesus, who made all of these claims to love the Word of God and the law of God, in actuality wasn't a lover of the Word of God and actually didn't think that it was something worth following. Now, 
in one sense, we have to sort of stop for a moment and just say, really, the law really said this. And as you read through the law of Moses uh, in the Old Testament, or the law of God as given through Moses, you discover that the death penalty is required for sexual immorality inside of a marriage, adultery. Uh, there are other instances that the death penalty is also required, murder as another example. And uh, although this was probably something that wasn't practiced very often in modern Israel during Jesus' time, especially since they didn't really have the ability to render the death penalty because the Romans were in charge, the reality is, is that this is an entirely unchristian kind of view of things. But in those days, Israel had to be pure. They were governed by God. And this was the government that God had to establish. Uh, had these laws not been given to them, the nation would have been so diluted through their polygamous, adulterous relationships with the pagan nations around them that the purity of the line of the Messiah would have been in jeopardy. And so a standard had to be set in Israel would be that standard bearer. Adultery is an absolute killer. It slaughters you emotionally, destroys and hurts generations. It is overcomable by the blood of Christ. And the guilt and shame someone bears can be dealt with by the blood of Christ. But it is a painful sin. Now, Jesus' response to these people is quite classic. He gets down on the ground and he writes with his finger. And... Uh, we don't know what it is that he was writing. He'll write again in just a moment. We don't know what he was writing. Many have ventured a guess. Some think that he was writing a quote from Exodus 23. So others think he was writing a quote from Jeremiah 17 about those who turn away from God will be written on the earth. Uh, some believe that he was writing the sins of the people that were there. Others think that his writing was entirely incidental. It doesn't tell us. All we know is that the word of Christ was very powerful. Because in verse 7, they continued to ask him, and he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. This is absolutely shocking and quite contrary to what they were expecting. They were expecting leniency. They were expecting Jesus to scoff at the law and be quite dismissive of the law. But instead, Jesus said, yes, I agree. The death penalty is required. I agree with this law. He who is without sin, take up the first stone and throw it at her. And let's get this capital punishment situation started. Now, this was interesting because, like I said, they expected Jesus to dismiss the law because he hung out with tax collectors and sinners and they saw him as a wine-bibber and glutton. But on the other hand, what they forgot about Jesus is that, well, in actuality, he made the law even stiffer than they had received. In Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you even look on a woman to lust after her in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. If you have hatred within your heart towards your brother, you are guilty of murder. He had all of these different examples where he is basically saying the law is more intense than you could ever know. And you are a law breaker by nature. That's who you are as people. And so Jesus looks and says, okay, well, 
let's let's do it. And I love this because in one sense, Jesus is not saying, well, hey, adultery is no big deal. Your sin is no big deal. A lot of people use this story to say that our sin is no big deal. You know, that they'll say things like, well, you know, hey, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. You know, I, I can't, I couldn't throw a stone there, you know, and, and then, hey, let's not, Jesus doesn't say adultery is no big deal. No, Jesus agrees with the law and understands that biblically adultery is horrible. And I just at this point pastorally would say, just do not go there. Don't have divorce in your vocabulary. When you get married, be married for life. Make that commitment, that covenant, and that contract. Now in verse 8, Jesus once more bent down and wrote on the ground. And again, we don't know what he was writing. I should note to you that this is the only time in Scripture that it records that Jesus wrote something. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And so it wasn't what they saw Jesus writing that convicted them. It says in verse 9 that, but when they heard it, all the way from the oldest down to the youngest, they began to leave one by one until Jesus was left alone with the woman. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, which is a respectful title, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is a beautiful transaction that is taking place here. And this is what I want you to notice. Jesus agreed with the law that the death penalty was required for adulterous practices. Right? He says, Yes, the one without sin you throw the first stone. Then when he is alone with the woman, obviously we understand that he in his sinless glory was the only one there qualified to throw that stone. He could have picked up the rock and commenced with this death penalty. Here's what he did though. He says, woman, I will not condemn you. I will not bring that death penalty upon you. Even though on the one hand he agreed with it, he also would not bring it. Now, now here's what's happening here. Jesus isn't simply dismissing this woman's sin as if it didn't matter. He isn't dismissing the capital punishment that the law required for her. No, he's not dismissing it all. What Jesus is in effect saying is he's saying, listen, I am not going to give you the death penalty. And even though he did not verbalize this out loud, what this woman would have realized years later is that Jesus himself received her death penalty for her, just as he has done for all of mankind. He looks upon you, he looks upon me, and he says, neither do I condemn you. I'm not here to condemn. I am here to save. And, and you may have a death penalty coming. And that may be what you have earned. And, and, and that may be the position you should be receiving. However, I'm not going to condemn. I'm going to take the death penalty that is rightfully yours. And I am going to own it for myself. And I myself will die on your behalf. Isn't that good? Isn't that gracious? Isn't that wonderful and kind of Jesus? 
And this is the thing that gives him the right then to say to the woman, go and sin no more. In other words, because of this wonderful thing that he's done for her, and this wonderful and glorious sacrifice and substitution that he has has given to us, because of that, he has every right in the world to say, go sin no more. From now on, sin no more. Not sinless perfection, but a lifestyle that is dedicated and devoted to obedience to him. Lest we trample the Son of God underfoot. Lest we say with our actions, oh, well, you know, whatever. Our sin it really is no big deal. No, we can no longer say that because our sin cost Jesus his life brutally. And so now, under new ownership, we proclaim and say, well, I want to be obedient to the Lord. And Jesus says to us from now on, sin no more. A word of sanctification. You know, sanctification, of course, if you ask the question, who is responsible for our sanctification? You'd have to say biblically that God is responsible to grow us and to change us and to transform us. But in another sense, you would also have to say that we are responsible. He looked at this woman and said, from now on, sin no more. You have a part to play in this. And so the wonderful grace that she received, and now she could go forth living her life for God. And again, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them. After this moment with this woman, he turns to the crowd and spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, just as with the Feast of Booths and Jesus saying in chapter 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. At nighttime there during the feast, they actually lit up these huge candlesticks that the wicks were made out of the old and used priestly garments. And uh, they would take these candlesticks, light up the court of the women in the temple mount. And people would come together at nighttime and there would be singing and dancing and celebration. It was a wonderful moment. And those candlesticks were designed to remind the people of the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke that had led the people of Israel during those 40 years of wilderness wandering. And so Jesus stands up and he says, hey, listen, that's me. I am the light of the world. Just as he had said earlier, I'm the rock. You know, I'm the, I'm the one that feeds your thirst. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. Here he says, I am the light of the world. I'm that God that was leading you in the Old Testament. I'm that God that was illuminating the path of his people during the wilderness wandering. And certainly this is exactly what Jesus does. He illuminates. He illuminates God. Who God is. He illuminates, as you look at Jesus on the cross, you see God's holiness. That he is so holy that that's what it took for man to be in fellowship with God. But it also illuminates the love of God, doesn't it? You see the amazing and marvelous love of God as he was willing to see his son sacrificed in order to have fellowship with you and me. He illuminates not only God, he illuminates all of mankind, declaring us fallen and wicked. He illuminates you personally and me personally, he illuminates others. He gives us discernment, he illuminates our path. He is the light of the world. As John said in 1 John 1, verse 6 and 7, he said, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie 
and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Jesus is that light of the world. So the Pharisees, verse 13, said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, this is exactly what Jesus had actually said way back in John 5. In verse 31, he said, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And here they say, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Except for one key little word. Jesus said, If I alone bear witness about myself. He was bearing witness about himself, but not alone. Jesus answered, Verse 14, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet, even if I do, verse 16, judge, my judgment is true. You know, sort of a secondary part of Jesus' ministry in that first coming was judgment. He came to save, but those who reject him by default, there's a judgment upon them. For it is not I alone who judge, Jesus said. You remember chapter 5, verse 31, if I alone bear witness, Jesus said here, it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. They would realize this back in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, and chapter 19, verse 15. If there were two witnesses, then the testimony could be received. He says, I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So there are two. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Again, this is a glimpse into the gospel that Jesus is the way and the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except by him. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Again, he was invincible until his hour would come. So he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin, and where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus was not a sugarcoater of the truth. He just told them, he said, listen, you're going to die in your sin. Sometimes people need to hear the harsh truth before they'll receive the wonderful gospel. And Jesus lets them know in a very straightforward way, you are going to die in your sin. There's this sin issue that must be dealt with. He says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Speaking of his ascension, as he did in chapter 7. So the Jews said, will he kill himself? Since he says, where I am going, you cannot come. Yeah, they're confused once again. In chapter 7, he talks about his ascension and they say, Is he going to go to the Greeks? Is he going to preach to the Gentiles? Here they say, Is he going to kill himself? He's talking about us unable to go where he is going. So he said to them, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, he, you will die in your sins. In other words, this sin problem must be dealt with, but there is one way for you to be released from dying in your sins, and it's to die in Christ. It's to believe in me, Jesus would say. So they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. 
But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. And they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And so Jesus tells these people, he says, listen, there will be a moment in time where my identity is clearer to you than ever before. And it's simply this, when you've lifted up the Son of Man. Now, when Jesus speaks of being lifted up, he's talking about the cross. He had said in John 3, verse 14, that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, an obvious reference to the cross of Christ. In John 12, verse 32 and 33, he says, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And so there is something about understanding Jesus that you only really get when you think about him on the cross. God is revealed, as I mentioned, his love, his holiness. Jesus is revealed. It all comes together when you begin to understand the cross of Christ. And verse 29, it says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus is careful to note here in verse 29 before we close for the day. He's careful to note that everything that he did was the will of the Father, including and not, lim and not limited to, but including Jesus going to the cross. This was part of God's desire. As Isaiah 53 verse 10 had prophesied, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so this expresses and helps us see the incredible worth that God has placed upon you and upon me. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so some people began to follow him at this point. You know, Jesus shines. He's the light of the world. And he shines brightly on sin. And he shines brightly into the darkness. But he mostly illuminates the grace of God and the way to God for this world. And so you and I, our duty is to receive his grace and to follow him. And to trust completely in his work on that holy cross. God bless you. And amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.